Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. On the podcast today, I'm talking to Robin Clark, who's a managing partner in a practice in Gloucestershire and a founder and director of the Institute of General Practice Management. Coming up, we're talking about the challenges of working as a practice manager in the current climate. What needs to be done to cut bureaucracy in general practice? And what practice managers are hoping to see from the next GP contract? And with increasing numbers of practice managers also facing burnout and considering their future in the profession, we also talk about what NHS England and GP partners need to do to support practice managers and recognise the vital role they play. I'm really pleased to be joined now by Robin Clark, who is a managing partner in South Gloucestershire and a director of the Institute of General Practice Management. Robin is a HR practitioner by background with experience of working in secondary care, mental health trusts and community health services. Along with being a managing partner, she's also now lead manager in her practice's primary care network. Robin is one of four practice managers who set up the Institute of General Practice Management in 2021 to represent managers working in general practice across the UK. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Robin. Thanks for having me. We've actually had some of your colleagues from the Institute of General Practice Management on the podcast before, but quite a while ago now, not since 2022. So for people listening who don't know, can you explain a little bit about what the IGPM is and what you do as a group? Sure, yeah. So the IGPM is the professional body for all managers working in general practice. So that isn't just your usual practice managers, it's also PCN managers, deputies, op managers, all those other kinds of management roles that you sometimes see. We offer formal accreditation and entry onto our professional register. We also offer peer support and advice. So we've got a series of WhatsApp groups which uh, members can access on different topics. Uh, You can email us directly and we have a whole team of regional representatives all across the UK. Uh, We represent the interests of managers working in general practice at sort of local, regional and national levels. So we engage with various stakeholders such as GPC, uh, the Department of Health and Social Care, CQC, RCGP, NHS England, Health Education and Improvement Wales and the LMC level. So we do that to kind of highlight the issues that are important to managers working in practices and PCNs. And we also create public facing campaigns that support general practice. And these have been around issues such as sort of patient abuse. And we've actually got one coming out soon, which is focusing on the benefits of care navigation. And as an organisation, we are made up solely of working practice and PCM managers. We're a not-for-profit organisation, so all of our membership fees get reinvested into the work that we do. The other thing you do is accreditation for practice managers. Can you just explain a little bit about that as well? The accreditation process is what gets you access to our professional register. Um, You get post-nominals of MIGPM after your name once you've completed it. And and it's basically a, a formal recognition that this person meets the standard of what is a really high quality practice manager or, or PCM manager as a separate accreditation framework for PCM managers. Um, it's been nationally recognised by NHS England as well. Um, and we've got lots of uh, ICBs, LMCs that are also funding this for practice managers because it is a, you know, a development opportunity. We also can use it as a framework for development. So if you're thinking about you know, succession planning, who's going to take after me? What do they need to learn? It's there for you as a way of sort of highlighting the skills that you need to have and we can also use it for partners if they are looking to develop their own practice manager or for appraisals as well it's a good framework of you know what your practice manager should be achieving and demonstrating It's been a really challenging few years for general practice and obviously practice managers have been at the forefront of helping practice ensure practices work effectively so they can provide a good service of patients. But being a practice manager is actually a really challenging job now, isn't it? How have you seen things change since you became a practice manager? 
So I've been a practice manager for nearly six and a half years now. And my experience probably pales in comparison to some of my peers at IGPM who've been doing it you know, since I was a child, which I like reminding them every now and again. Uh, but the various sort of iterations of contracts and commissioning organizations are probably those biggest changes. So I've only seen CCGs become ICBs, but you know there have been many other versions before that, PCTs, all that kind of stuff. So the, the role itself, though, has also developed massively. You know, previously, the practice manager might have held responsibility for just the kind of day-to-day operations of a practice. They might provide cover for other roles like reception or admin or secretarial. But the role now is just so much broader and it's much more strategic. You know, practice managers are holding almost as much responsibility and accountability as their partners do. We're actually seeing a lot more of practice managers becoming partners, which is really interesting because I think that's showing the recognition and the value of what practice managers bring to their surgeries. I mean, if you look at our accreditation framework, there are 10 separate domains that make up the role of an average practice manager. So it's a really big, but absolutely vital job. You're a partner now. Has that changed the role that you do? My actual day-to-day job hasn't really changed at all. Being a practice manager, you're kind of at that top level of decision-making already, probably more in an influencing role in terms of decision-making than an actual, you know, having the same equal say. I think that's probably the biggest difference is now that when I vote on something, my vote counts just as much as the rest of the partners around the table. But I think for a lot of practice managers, it's not a huge difference. We already treat the surgery like our business. You know, we already feel that we have that sense of accountability and responsibility. So almost just the difference in sort of terms of title and obviously the financial buy-in and remuneration that you get as a result of becoming a partner. But the job for me hasn't really changed at all. One of the things that we've seen sort of change in the last 10 years or so is the average list size of a GP practice has gone up. So practices are much bigger now, generally. They've got way more on average patients. How has the move towards larger GP practices affected the role of practice managers? Has it made it more complex job? It can do if you don't put the support underneath you almost to kind of manage that change so bigger surgeries tend to have a much bigger management team you know you may have a sort of overarching practice manager and you sometimes hear titles of like exec manager or managing director instead and then there are more levels of sort of middle management underneath that and I think that is necessary just to be able to stay on top of all of those requirements I mean my practice isn't huge it's a 13,000 list size practice but I have a deputy manager a reception manager an admin manager and a workflow manager so I've got that support underneath me so that I can focus on the things that only I can do and then my management team have delegated responsibilities for other things and I think that's really key in trying to manage these bigger size practices. I was going to come and talk to you about um, sort of complexity of the role in a minute. But while we're talking about sort of like changes in recent years, obviously the, the really big change over the last five years has been the introduction of primary care networks. How has that impacted on practice managers? Has that made your job more complicated as well? The PCN does has had a considerable impact on workload in practices. You know, there, there is additional funding, but there are also a lot of additional requirements that come with it. You can access more staff, but these staff, they have to be recruited. They have to be onboarded, supervised, appraised, paid, trained. And all of these things have an impact on sort of practice or, or PCN manager time. Keeping on top of PCM finances is also a bit of a minefield in itself. And I know there are some PCMs that have become limited companies and that has introduced like whole other levels of bureaucracy. Of course, there's contract compliance. You know, there are additional services that we provide under the PCN DES and those need resourcing, they need planning and they need implementation. 
the impact for practices really depends on the network and the individuals involved. You know, if you're a single practice PCN, you might not have seen much change. But if you're a multi-practice PCN with member practices that may be rural or far away from each other or have sort of different demographics, then that can be more challenging to manage. I used to be the, the lead manager for our PCN, but we have since recruited a fantastic PCN manager. And her being there has meant there's a lot less of an impact on my role because she takes care of the things like the finance, the contract compliance and coordinating the staff. There is still obviously additional work for me to do. So I have to go to PCM board meetings. I have to reconcile payments. You know, we're the lead practice for finance. So all of the PCM money comes kind of into my practice account and we then have to deal with it. And I obviously have to communicate with my practice about what's going on in the PCN so that everyone's kind of aware. But yeah, it would be a lot more onerous if she wasn't with us. So I'm very grateful to have that role in place. You mentioned there about all these new staff that are coming to general practice. So this is the additional roles reimbursement scheme. Does the fact that practice is using sort of a far wider range of staff than they have done in the past, perhaps a different kind of skill mix than you used to have, how does that affect practice managers and add to the complexity of running a practice? It can be tough if you've only ever had the sort of traditional GP, nurse, HDA as your clinical sort of team. Um, So a lot of it is, first of all, getting to know what it is exactly that each of these roles can do and what they bring to the practice, and then making sure that all of your staff understand this as well. You know, care navigation doesn't work if you don't know what it is that your other staff can do. So a lot of investment goes into training and communication with staff and patients then about these new roles. And then it's also trying to organise what are their training requirements, appraisal or supervision need to happen to make it work effectively. And that in itself can just create a whole lot of other issues because you have to build time into it. You know, GPs need to have blocks put in for supervising these staff. So that has an impact then on appointment availability. So there are a whole load of considerations that you need to make when you're bringing them on. If you can get them working effectively, then obviously it brings tons and tons of benefits. But then the other issue is, are you using these staff across your PCN as well? And then that has a whole other level of complexity because you have to make sure that you know they're working across multi-sites, you need risk assessments in place, you need to communicate with a whole lot more people than just who are in your own practice. So it kind of depends on how you set it up. But either way, it's not just a case of get that person in, start them off and they'll run with it. It's a lot more complicated than that. Do you think it's starting to bed down a bit now, though? Because obviously we're coming towards the end of five years. But do you think people are getting more used to this new way of working? So in my practice, we've had paramedics pre-2019. You know, we've had a nurse practitioner for longer than that as well. So for us, it wasn't a huge step change. I think from what we've seen as IGPM is it it tends to impact more on smaller surgeries with smaller list sizes or or increased virality as well, because the the traditional model tends to just be what's always been there. And then there's been a lot less opportunity or desire to innovate with these new kind of roles. Even those are starting to change now as it gets harder to recruit GPs because, you know, you need somebody. And if you can't get a GP in, it seems like the R scheme is what people fall back on. I think the biggest change probably is for patients. There seems to be a lot more anti-other roles at the moment out there. People are very much, I want to see a GP and it's my right to be seen by a GP. And a lot of the education is really difficult in trying to say to patients, you know, if you've got a chest infection, it doesn't need a GP to see that. You know, a paramedic can see that, a physician associate can see that or a nurse practitioner could see that. Again, it depends on your patient demographic about how successful that's going to be as well. So there are so many variables. And I think the staff get quite fatigued as well from just hearing about, oh, we've got so-and-so coming to join us and they're 
this different role. And it might be a role that you've never heard of. It becomes a bit concerning for people to just say, well, wouldn't it just be easier if it was just doctors and nurses? <laughs> but I do think those roles do add a lot of value if used in the right way. You've mentioned care navigation. This is like a really big part of this whole access recovery plan. NHS England's idea for how to improve access to general practices, modern access to general practices. So there's, there's training available for people, for practices to learn about care navigation. From your experience in the IGPM, do you think practices are kind of taking this on? And how is it sort of changing the roles of receptionists and practice managers? I think it's definitely being picked up. I mean, most of the practices that I know do some level of care navigation. Our practice has been doing it for a number of years. And it's probably got a little bit easier recently because we are able to um, use our online triage system as well to facilitate that care navigation even more. I do think it does help. I think it helps educate patients um, in particular areas, especially where people don't tend to take a lot of responsibility for their own health. And they will come to the GP with like the smallest thing that, you know, could be seen at a chemist, could be dealt with by self-care or self-referral to the more appropriate services. So we have found that it does actually maximise appointment availability for things that only those GPs can deal with. Definitely does have its place. The issue that I have with it is just that it feels like receptionists are then sort of given the responsibility to educate patients when actually this is something that should be a public health message. You know, it should be coming from government. You should know that if you've got a bit of athlete's foot, you could go and buy an over-the-counter cream for it. It shouldn't be see your GP about absolutely every health concern that you have. And it doesn't feel fair to me that it's falling to reception staff to kind of provide that education, which often then results in them being abused for actually trying to do the right thing. It adds stress and pressure to practice managers' workloads because we have to help train the staff to do it, implement it, deal with the complaints when we get them from patients who aren't happy about it, and the stress on the staff if it doesn't go well. So I'm for doing it, but I don't feel it should be our responsibility to lead those messages. It's a really good point, isn't it? The whole uh, sort of abuse patient, I know that the IGPM did do something about patient abuse because obviously it has a massive impact on those staff in the front of house in particular, which practice managers are responsible for. Do you think that's getting any better at all or is it still a real problem? I think it's got worse, if anything. In my sort of locality recently, it's our last practice managers meeting. It was one of the things that got brought up as, is anybody else experiencing this kind of worsening in, in these responses? I probably sent more warning letters out in December comparatively than in my whole career. <laughs> It's fueled by, you know, media coverage that the NHS is just failing and that, you know, patients can't get appointments, which we all know is crazy because activity is up 20% on on pre-pandemic levels. No one's sending that message to the media, though, like they are with the you just can't see the doctors, uh, you know, patient satisfaction is down. It's always the negative messaging that gets out there. I mean, I've had patients complain about the wait time for an appointment when they've only had to wait four days for a routine issue. And you just think that the service that you want doesn't exist. The service that you want is is a private service. It's an Amazon Prime service that just the NHS is not funded to do. And there's not enough, in our view, being done to support practices who are trying to do the best that they can. The problem that a lot of practices struggle with is maintaining continuity of care, which a lot of people do want. You know, they don't want to have to tell the same story over and over again. They want to see the same person. But a lot of GPs don't work every day of the week. A lot of GPs are popular. So they've got a waiting list almost if people who want to see them, which is a good thing because it means they're doing a good job. But patients then don't want to wait and they don't understand why it's not just accessible when they want it. 
and we we often hear about GPs are all part time. They're they're really not. <laughs> you know, you may be in three days a week, but if you're working twelve hour days, you're essentially full time. But patients just think, why aren't you in every day? And we all constantly get the, can I just have a quick phone call? Can't they just ring me back about this? And they don't seem to understand that that phone call is an appointment. And there are a finite number of appointments that we can offer each day whilst you know, adhering to state safe staffing levels. So I, I just almost feel like the, the patient expectation is really out of kilter with what general practice can safely offer. But no one is giving that message out to patients about what is safe and what is effective and what to expect. The other thing, obviously, that NHS England's really been pushing is this general practice improvement programme. What's your sense about what the level of uptake has been? Because obviously, I mean, all of this stuff really falls on practice managers to do. What's your sense about the level of uptake and, and whether or not it's been helpful, that scheme? From feedback, we've gathered that the uptake hasn't been as good as initially hoped. But when, when we've asked kind of why this is, it's just mostly due to workload pressures, you know. And that is a shame because where I've heard people who have undertaken the programme, they've said really positive things about it. So I, I always try and say to people that sometimes you have to speculate to accumulate initial bit of extra work or additional stress. But if it pays off dividends in the end, then sometimes it's worth doing it. So you know, the general consensus at the moment is you know, managers aren't able to see the wind for the tree. So it kind of puts people off from engaging because they just don't have the energy for that initial extra amount of effort that's going to be needed. It's difficult. And another issue we've heard is that there are many ways to improve access, but it doesn't actually stem the tide of demand. At my practice, you know, we've done all of the recommendations. You know, we've got a total triage online system. We have cloud-based telephony. We've got care navigation. We have a multi-skilled ours workforce and we've maxed out our ours budget. I still don't have empty appointments. My phone lines are still busiest at eight o'clock in the morning, despite there being that online system being available. So the demand just keeps on coming. And I think that can be quite demotivating because you, you make all those changes, but you don't see a difference in the volume of work. And, and it's not saying that these things aren't worth doing at all. I do feel like our patients get a better service with all these things that we've put in. But it's just a lot of mental and emotional effort that doesn't sort of solve the overall problem of demand isn't keeping up with our resource. One of the things I did want to talk to you about is bureaucracy. There's been a problem for years with too much bureaucracy in general practice, I mean, arguably across the NHS as a whole. There's been a number of initiatives sort of aimed at addressing this, and some of those were part of the Access Recovery Plan. But has anything changed on this, do you think, or or are practices still drowning in administrative tasks? I don't think that that aim has been achieved at all. For example, the implementation of the PCSE portal, I think bureaucracy might have actually increased for PCSE in terms of unpicking errors and rectifying mistakes that have been made. That you know, takes hours of practice manager time. PCSE, that's Primary Care Support England. So this is the system which all the payments for general practice come through, isn't it? And pensions, yeah. That's been beset with woes and awfulness for, for years, hasn't it? And it, that has nothing improved on that from your point of view. As IGPM, we've had some direct meetings with PCSE where we, they, thankfully, they are listening to us and engaging with us and trying to improve things. And we are highlighting back to them major errors when we find them. But it just feels like the number of errors doesn't necessarily reduce in other areas like in my ICB area I feel like we almost have there are new forms and processes coming out all the time that we have to comply with and in a lot of cases I can't really see the benefit of them or that they actually reduce the administrative burden and obviously there's still a lack of sort of joined up systems in many areas so like you know the transfer of information around patients is also not seamless so that creates additional workload the current phase of say like the online registrations program you know is progressing but 
up until now, in my view, it, it hasn't made a massive difference. And I don't think it will until patients can register online and then it's automatically added to the workflow of your EPR. Because at the moment, staff are still having to transfer information manually from you know a PDF document instead of a paper document into the clinical system that you're using. Digitization of records as well hasn't progressed nearly as far as we'd like to. So we're still drowning in paper notes that take up valuable space. So yeah, there's a, a lot of things that I think our aims but haven't been achieved one of the other big problems um, that we write about quite a bit is the whole issue about the interface between primary care general practice and, and other parts of the system obviously mostly hospitals how much does that impact on practices when you're getting work bounced back or things don't move through the system in the way that gps and practices would like i think the admin burden is huge but i, and I do feel actually still that most of it falls to our clinical colleagues i've had gps who have quit salary posts and gone locuming instead because the admin burden is too high and it almost feels like you're never getting to the end of it pushback from other parts of the system doesn't help you know you send a referral it gets rejected if it's rejected and you can't see why it's rejected you then spend ages trying to figure out what's happened the constant gp to action comment that we get back from other services is just endless and and you just think you know this this isn't fair but even to flag it up you know to submit a data or something is then admin work to flag up that there's a problem so it just feels like it's it's never ending i do feel for our clinical colleagues i mean the amount of paperwork that still comes through in my surgery we have a whole team dedicated just to document workflow and i've got you know one and a half whole time equivalent staff whose whole role is just to process all of the correspondence that we get one of the other bits which could be classed as bureaucracy that people often have a moan about is, is the quaff. And I want to talk to you about that because there's a consultation running at the minute asking for people for their views on how the quaff should change in future. And obviously, I don't think lots of people don't necessarily always understand this, but the quaff is a really big part of a practice manager's role, particularly at this time of year when you're trying to get everybody in, make sure you've you've done all the checks and things you need to do. But there are a lot of complaints that become too bureaucratic, too box ticking. From your point of view as a practice manager, how would you like to see it change in the future if it does change? I'd like to see the activity actually add real value and and patient benefit and avoid duplication. And I think we see quite a lot of the time as being a, a a sort of mechanism for micromanagement. You know, GPs have become very good at preventative medicine and the actual things that we need to do for quaff quite often just form part of good patient care. There also needs to be a bit more common sense attached to it. So, for example, this year's Chartered Vaccinations Indicator, you know, so many practices are not able to achieve this because you can't exception report it. It doesn't take into account patient choice. And, you know, that, that might not be the right choice, depending on your viewpoint, but patients do have the ability to make decisions for themselves, even if they are unwise. So it seems unfair to kind of penalise a practice if you can't force somebody into doing something they don't want to do. The workforce wellbeing QI indicator, that's another example of kind of common sense to me. Like no practice sets out to make their staff miserable. And I still fail to see how having two PCN meetings about wellbeing will actually demonstrate an improvement in staff wellbeing. If that's the requirement, that's quite a pitiful requirement, to be honest. I, th- I think overall, I'd rather see quaff income rolled into core for practices to utilise really as they see fit. You know, we're subject to CQC regulation. There are mechanisms in place for patients to raise complaints if they're not happy with their standard of care. But there kind of needs to be that trust given to practices to use money appropriately and provide a good standard of care to the patients in the way that impacts those patients most, you know, 
effectively. We know really that preventative medicine is best because if it's done right, people stay healthier. They're less of a burden on practices in the long run. So let's get on with it, really. Talking more generally, is there anything else you'd like to see change to kind of cut back on bureaucracy? Making the referral process easier and reducing pushback and mission creep from other sectors in health onto primary care. One thing that I think could help more is is to fund and support digital innovations better because there are some that do make a big difference, but they're not implemented in a structured way and practices don't always feel supported in putting them in. You know, trust us more, stop micromanaging and appreciate that the you know, GP partners and managers, we do know our stuff and we are making decisions in the best interests of our patients. And we actually know our patients better than, than the governing bodies engage maybe with those doing the job to find out what the real pressures are and work with us on it. I mean, recently we've had quite a few of our IGPM reps meet with local MPs and they have no idea how general practice is funded or structured. And they just tend to go with what they see in the press. So, you know, we are subject matter experts. So like, come and talk to us. We'll be more than happy to sort of tell you what things are really like on the ground. A lot of the stuff we're kind of talking about, it does link into the GP contract, but the GP contract has become so complicated in recent years. It's kind of this thing and then extra bits get bolted on the side and some bits get chopped off. And then then on top of that, you've got all your local contracts, practice of all the local contracts that they're delivering services under, which are commissioned by the ICB or in their area. How difficult is it to manage all those things? Has it made the job of a practice manager really, really complicated, basically? I mean, it takes up hours and hours of reading. It takes a huge amount of time to review everything that comes through because you then have to make sure that you can resource it, you can implement those requirements and that you know, you've know you got everything needed to actually get on and do it. And the reporting requirements can be complex as well. Sometimes the reporting requirements can seem really arbitrary. I think it's for some of the QI projects, you just sort of send a report into your ICB about what you've done. The question has been asked before, have these even been read? And the answer is often very vague and not specific enough to say that they have been. I think that the hardest challenge, though, for managers is that the complexity will increase, but the funding doesn't. So it becomes harder and harder for us to commit to the work because we don't have the money behind it to fund it. We're coming to the end of the five-year contract in the next couple of months. What, as a practice manager, would you like to see come out in any contract agreement for this coming year? I don't think I could stop banging the funding drum, to be honest. <laughs> Our profession especially is really, really concerned about the national living wage rise in April. Some of our members have, have said that they're expecting a potential of thirty to £100,000 annual increase in staffing costs as a result of going up to 11.44. So if that's not adequately funded, there is a serious risk of staff either being made redundant, which is only going to worsen access to healthcare which the government apparently don't want, or it might even lead to more practices handing their contracts back. So we're talking about you know, problems with access, widening health inequalities, all because of this one change. You know, as managers, we are constantly asked by staff about pay and the cost of living. It's bad enough that we're not funded to the same levels as our Agenda for Change colleagues, which all of our staff are aware of because it gets a lot more publicity. But it just seems absolutely mad that we've got a government that recognises that the minimum wage needs to increase, but then they don't increase the funding for services that they directly commission and they pay for. If we can't stay competitive, we'll lose staff anyway to better paid jobs, which isn't something that we can afford to do. 
actually, while we're talking about this, the 6% pay rise last year, the funding that came through the contract, it wasn't really enough for many practices to cover the cost of it. So practices have had to suck up that, that cost. But how did all that go down with staff as well? And how difficult was it to manage that process by practice managers? This last financial year that we're in at the moment has probably been the most complicated one that we've had in terms of staff pay, because we were expected to only get 2.1%. And then the national living wage goes up. And then, of course, you have to increase that. So individual practices are making individual decisions about how they could accommodate those changes. And then further down the year, we've then got, oh, it's going to be 6%. So then we've got another in-year change to make, you know, backdating pay. I think payroll departments across the country were having a nightmare because this also impacts on pension tiers and stuff as well now. And then the 6%, it wasn't a 6%. The rationale was it's 6% increase on, I think it was 44% of your core contract. Where this 44% figure came from, I have no idea. I have not yet been able to find a single practice who only spends 44% of their core contract on staffing. It didn't include on costs, which is you know an additional 30% there that respons- uh, employers are responsible for. So when it came back, it was it, staff are all saying, right, we're getting 6%. And then managers and partners are saying, actually, it's not 6%. Some were still able to do it, but some financially didn't find it viable. So there's the whole confusion among staff around what actually you are getting and why. And it's so not transparent from NHS England because they just come out with this arbitrary figure and tell everyone it's 6%, but it might not be. <laughs> a really stressful period in trying to manage expectations, but also process changes. And for partners as well, many of whom have had to reduce their own drawings to be able to fund it. We talk a lot on this podcast about the challenges around recruitment and retention of GPs. But this is also actually, and I know this is something you want to talk about, it is also a problem when it comes to practice managers as well. You know, we've been talking about how hard the job has become. Burnout and stress must also be an issue for practice managers. Are we finding that more practice managers are leaving the profession as well? Sadly, yes. So we're just in the process of analysing our latest uh, member survey results. But last year's results showed that there was a significant number of respondents who were looking to leave in the next sort of one to five years. We are seeing more and more managers that coming in from outside of the industry, which is great, but it's less of that previous trend of staff working their way up from within practices. It kind of highlights that internal staff are actively choosing not to progress into a management role, which is really concerning. And I think that's because they see how hard their current practice manager works and just think, oh my God, that's not for me, or that's too much pressure. I think we talk a lot about moral distress in clinical staff, but this actually impacts managers as well. You know, There are so many things that we'd like to say yes to that we know are justified, you know, like these pay rises, but circumstances beyond our control actually prevent us from being able to and that actually has quite an emotional burden on people and and more than anything it's a really lonely role there's only one of you in your practice and it's not as easy to sort of share the burden as it might be amongst sort of a team of people all doing the same job we're very passionate about our roles and, and our surgeries and we often take criticism very personally as well because we take such ownership for where we work so it can be quite emotionally draining and quite stressful But at the same time, I think it's a brilliant job and I would highly recommend it to anybody. (laughs) Every practice is really different, isn't it? I mean, that's that's kind of part of the joy of general practice, but it's, it's finding the practice that's right for you, I suppose. I find it hard to see that GPs can't see how important practice managers are and the value of practice managers. But do you think there are still cases where practice managers perhaps are not understood enough by their GP partners and they don't see how hard they're working and the importance of them? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's a, it's a real mixed bag. We've got a lot of uh, GP partners who are definitely IGPM supporters who really do value the role and understand how, how integral it is. But there are a lot of partners out there who will still say, I don't really know what it is the practice manager does. You know, I've kind of got an idea, but I don't know the full remit of the role. And I've met a few when I've been out sort of talking in, in groups or doing trading. They've just said, you know, what's the best way to look after my practice manager? Because I'm not entirely sure. So something that I think does need addressing practice managers do need a lot of support and but that's not just from their own partners it needs to be wider as well it needs to be an attractive career to actually bring people into and you know we've worked with nhs england to try and help promote the role through workforce development programs and we try to advertise you know what a great and rewarding job it is but i think that internal support is really really key and making sure that practice managers are well looked after and well supported. Do you think there's anything else that we could do to kind of make sure that practice managers don't end up either really, really stressed so they leave or to encourage more people to take on the role of a practice manager? What else could, say, NHS England be doing or what else can GP partners be doing in their own businesses? I'd say have a good understanding of what the role is. Lots of people don't really understand how broad it is. So if you're not sure, you can look at our IGPM accreditation framework and that will kind of show you what a practice manager should be doing. Check in on them regularly and sort of just show them that you appreciate them and also make sure you pay them properly as well. I think that's something that there's a massive disparity in practice manager pay, which is really quite concerning in some areas. So you need to pay them what they're worth. Personal boundaries are really important as well. You know, If we're not at work, leave us alone. <laughs> it's quite easy to pick up the phone and just say, oh, Robin will fix this because she'll know what she's doing. But, you know, I could be on holiday. I could be really needing that downtime. So you need to sort of bear that in mind. You should really only contact them when they're not at work in very exceptional circumstances. Don't undermine the role as well. You know, staff will often seek a second opinion if they don't get what they want. But your response should always be, you know, what did the practice manager say? There's nothing worse than kind of undermining their authority. And finally, I think just facilitate their personal development as well. So IGPM are launching an appraisal toolkit later this month for members, which partners can use to hold a really good, strong appraisal. And that will help you have a really good understanding of what the role is and where they want to go with their development. And all of that development is going to be for your benefit. You know, they're going to bring all of those skills into your practice. So we'd really recommend using that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Robin. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, Emma. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Robin for taking the time to talk with me. You can find more information about the Institute of General Practice Management from the link in the description for this episode. If you're interested in any of the things we've talked about today, don't forget GP Online's sister website, GP Business, provides lots of practical advice and information to help support GP partners and practice managers running their business, covering financial, management and leadership issues, as well as providing updates on the GP contract and other changes in primary care that will affect your practice. You can find more information and details on how to subscribe at gpbusiness.co.uk. I'll be back next week for our regular news review, so please do join me then.